Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Good morning. Turn to the person next to you and say, are you ready? Don't you love stories in the Bible where God delivers? I mean, those are the greatest stories ever, right? And they're all over Scripture, all over the place. <laughs> we have these moments where God shows up, and it's always at the last moment, right? It's always when there's nothing else that can be done. God shows up and delivers in a big, monstrous way, and our response to reading that is, yes! And then our response in preaching that is, look who God is! And we, we see these all over the scripture. And these are the stories that we love to tell. And these are the ways that we expect God to move. Do you believe that God is a God who delivers? He's a God who delivers. He delivers when it's impossible for deliverance. And yet God so often swoops in, changes everything. And then he receives all the glory and all the praise. And we love to say, that is my God. And the Bible's full of them, right? I mean, just in the Old Testament alone, you've got stories where the, the children of Israel are up against the Red Sea. You know, Pharaoh's army's behind them, and they're, they're marching in like a flood, and, and, and all the Israelites are like, we're going to die, and they start blaming Moses. You led us to the place of death, and Moses cries out to God, God, what are you going to do? And God says, let me show you. And he, 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 he does what God says to do with the water, and the water backs up into this giant wall, and, and I imagine Moses says, walk through. I mean, Charlton Heston says that, but he, he's like, come on, right? I mean, you got this hundreds of thousands of, of Israelites marching through this dry river or this dry sea now, but it gets even better. But wait, there's more. As soon as the Israelites get to the other side, God keeps the water up and Pharaoh's like, let's go after them. So they get out into the middle of the sea, and as soon as the entire army's there, God's like, psych, and moves his hands and just blows them all away, and they're like drowning. And, and we're looking at these stories and going, that's my God. That's my God. You have these times in Joshua where Joshua says to the people of Israel, hey, that city, Jericho, is ours. God is going to deliver it into our hands, but it's not going to happen like you think. God's going to do it only a way he can. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. And by that time, all the people are going to be up on the walls mocking us like, who do you think you are just walking through, playing your silly little flutes and instruments around the wall? And on the seventh time around, God is going to create this earthquake and walls are going to tumble down and the people inside the city are going to be so confused and so surprised that they run away in fear of their lives and even start killing each other. And sure enough, God does this and we say, that's my God. And Old Testament is constant, but in the New Testament, one of my favorites where Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel. He's in between two jailers. He's got chains on his wrist and on his feet. There is no hope that he's going to escape. And then in the evening time, the gates began to shake and the, 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 the doors began to come off their hinges and the shackles, they bust off of his hands. And he stands up and he walks straight out of the gates with nobody stopping him. And we say, that's our Over and over and over, God delivers, doesn't he? 
Do you believe he's a delivering God? Yeah, we pray for it. But sometimes he doesn't deliver. Sometimes he totally misses it. Sometimes he, he fails. Sometimes he doesn't do what he promises. Now, you know those words actually aren't true. It's just what we think and we say to ourselves and we feel so often. The biggest example I can think of right now is this. We've got uh, people who have been sick, and we, we, we literally have, have people who, pray and, who are praying all over the world for healing of our friends and our family, and yet God doesn't deliver from the hospital bed or from the ventilator. And we say, what happened to my delivering God? And it's so often we feel like we have to make excuses for God. Well, and we try to explain it away. But the truth is, sometimes God doesn't deliver. And you and I have to deal with that. We have to wrestle with that. Because if we don't wrestle with that, if we don't deal with that, we are going to be in a very desperate state for the rest of our lives. What I want to do today is help us to move from questioning the, 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 the why and the how and the what to being confident and courageous in saying, yes, it is true. Sometimes God chooses not to deliver, and I'm okay with that. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 3. This is another one of those stories where God just, just shows up in a big way. I feel like a Bible should have a top and a bottom written on it because sometimes they look all the same. In Daniel chapter 3, we have a story. No doubt you've heard this before if you've had any experience in church or even with you know, children's Bible studies. But in Daniel chapter 3, here, here's what's happening. There's this pharaoh, this king called Nebuchadnezzar, and he thought he was God. This is evident because he set up a statue. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now let's just get some perspective on that, okay? This stage from that corner to this line is 8 feet. I know that because I built it, and that's a sheet of plywood that goes that way. It's also 8 feet that way. Actually, it's 12 feet that way. So eight feet, so right here, from here to the corner, that is nine feet wide. And it's ten times that what wide as it, it, it's ten times as tall. So it's nine feet wide, 90 feet tall. This ceiling is about 25 feet tall, 25 to 28 feet. So you take that and you multiply it by three times. That is a giant, giant statue. And the Bible says that he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, no doubt so everyone could see. And King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So in other words, he sent word out to his entire kingdom, I want you to show up on this day at this time, because when you come, we're going to dedicate the statue to me, and you will worship the statue, and thereby you will worship me, because I am God. This was it. You want to talk about narcissism, <laughs> right? So he sends the word out, and all of these people, all of these leaders, all of these uh, uh, um, uh, different positions and offices. And, and listen, the, if the leaders worship, the people worship. This is, a, this is a way of him 
gathering power and reminding everybody else, you serve at my request. You are indebted to me because I am God. So he gathers them all together. And so when they came to the de dedication, verse 4, a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music. In other words, he gathered the symphony. You know, they tuned to begin with and all, right? And they had the conductor there, tap, 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 tap. He said, when you hear the symphony begin to play, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that the king has set up, but whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace or to the furnace of blazing fire. And therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the entire orchestra, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the picture that we have here is this. You have this king who thinks he's a god, a pharaoh who thinks he's a god, and, and as he, not pharaoh, uh, the king who thinks he's a god, and as he is, is, is proclaiming this, the music starts, and you hear this, because if you've ever had thousands of people fall to their knees at the same time, what you hear is the ruffling of, of the clothing, and then you hear the thump of the, of the ground. And it was like this, Maybe you would have even seen the dust come up from the ground. And yet there were three. There were three who stood. These are the kind of stories that, that we, we macho men like, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> right? You get them, right? Three against the world. But you know, the three were not the heroes. God was the hero. Because what was going on was, this was a, a face-off between the, the uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and God. The people were just the audience. Ne uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three who stood, they were simply God's mouthpieces or God's messengers or the, the ones that he was going to use to declare himself mighty. But to make no mistake, this was between Pharaoh or <laughs> this was between Nebuchadnezzar and God. So some Chaldeans came to Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, uh, I don't know if you could see, because there's a lot of people here, but there were three, th those Jewish guys, you know, the Israelites, you know, the, the exiles, the captives. There were three who totally defied your order. I don't know if you noticed, but everybody knelt and worshipped except these three. They stood there in defiance of you. And the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar got enraged. He was enraged, and rightly so. Who dare would defy such a powerful ruler? So he called them together into his presence. And in verse 13, Then furious and rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, this is amazing. They must have had favor with Nebuchadnezzar because he said previously, I will immediately throw you into a blazing furnace. But what he did was, he says, now I'm going to give you a second chance. I like you. I'm kind of fond of you. You're important to my kingdom. I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to cue up the orchestra. And when they start to play, if you fall down, we're going to be all good. And I'm just going to forget this little thing happened. 
But if you do not, listen to what he says, if you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Wow. You have this apex moment, this, this moment of mono imano, God against Nebuchadnezzar, and it's being played out through these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I love the response in verse 16. The response is this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. This is classic. I don't recommend you do this in your home to your parents, though. It's not going to work. Works here, won't work at home. He said, you'll understand, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. <laughs> You'll be picking your teeth up off the floor. Don't do that at home, okay? But for them, see, here's the thing. They knew who they were in their position in their God. But more than that, they knew who their God was. And their God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an engraven image. You shall not worship anyone but the Lord your God. They had a fear for their God more than they had a fear for this demigod called Nebuchadnezzar. And so they answered him, we don't have to give you an answer, but we will. And our answer is this. Verse 17, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from uh, the furnace of blazing fire. I, I just... And he, and he can rescue us from the power of you. Verse 19, or verse 18, but even if he does not rescue us, we will not worship, we will not fall down. And that's where I want to concentrate our time today. We know the end of the story. The end of the story is God showed up in a mighty way. The three of them were thrown into the fire. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious at this declaration and this defiance of, of, of of, of who he was, that he took his strongest men and had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound up with ropes. And then he had the furnace put to the highest, highest level of heat. And it was so hot that the men who threw the three into the flames actually burned up themselves. That's called radiant heat, by the way. It was so hot that they inflamed in themselves. But Nebuchadnezzar stood up and he looked into the fire and he said, Whoa, didn't we throw three into the fire? But I see four. In there, they are unbound, unchained, and they are walking around. Bring them out. When they came out, they didn't even smell like a singed hair. God delivered, and that's when we say that's our God. But even if He does not, is where I want to rest today. Because you know, the truth is, many of us have had experiences in our life. Maybe you're dealing with this right now. You are praying so hard to God. You are pleading with God. You are begging with God. God, deliver me. God, deliver us. God, deliver them. And yet it feels like God is saying, I will not deliver. And you are holding out hope to the very last moment that God will swoop in and save the day. But then the clock ticks one more second and you realize God didn't answer. And your faith drops to the floor and you say to yourself, where was God? What do you do with that now? How are you going to keep on going believing in a God who didn't do what he said he was going to do? There's problem number one. Do you know that God never promised to deliver you from every fire? 
He did not. You cannot go anywhere in Scripture and find that God said, I will deliver you from every infirmity. I will deliver you from every, every uh, struggle. I will deliver you from every trial. I will deliver you from every fire. See, the problem that we have is we take Old Testament promises to a specific people or to a specific person. And we generalize them and we say, if God promised him, he must make the same promise to me. And then we stand and we say, God promised me deliverance. And God didn't promise you deliverance. He promised the nation of Israel deliverance in that moment, in that time, for a specific purpose. It is a misapplication of Scripture to take a Scripture that was specifically for a situation and apply it overall as a direct, specific promise to every situation in our life. That's, that's, that's accusing God of lying. And God is not a liar. The one, one of the things that irritates me as a, as a man is when you say, but Jeff said this. That gets up all over me. It's like, whoa, time out. What did I say? Now, the truth is, sometimes I say it, and I don't remember I say it, but I'd say most of the time, or a lot of times, I go, whoa, time out. You're insulting my integrity by saying I made a promise that I didn't keep. I didn't promise you that. You heard what you wanted to hear. You didn't hear what I said. Amen? Listen, folks, we cannot claim that God makes a promise that he doesn't make. Thus saith the Lord is a very serious thing. When the Lord says something, he means it, but we have to understand to whom and how he says it. So what do we do with those promises? We look back and we say, you know what? This is the character of God as revealed through that specific promise. So there's a possibility that God's promise to them could work out to my favor in this situation. But it also could mean that God's ways are different than my ways in this and what I think that he's going to do is something that he's not going to do. In fact, he might do the total opposite. I think that these three men understood some things about the character of God. Number one, they said it right out. And our God is able to deliver us. Do you believe that God is, I've asked this a couple of times, do you believe God is a deliverer, that he's able? Yeah, he is able to deliver us. He can. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He has the ability to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it like that. He can, if he can speak the world into existence, he can speak your problem gone or your, your whatever it is uh, in, into deliverance. He can just speak it. He didn't even have to speak it. He can just think it, you know, blink it or whatever. You know, he's not a genie, but I mean, he, he, can, he can do it. He's able. There is nothing beyond his power to do. And yet... I believe that they understood that even though he can, and, he, and, and notice that say, they, they said he is able and he will. They not only believed he could, but they believed he would. That's where we need to be. We need to believe that God can and we need to believe that God will, but we still need to recognize that maybe there's something that God sees that we don't see. And if that's the case, I am going to yield and submit to the sovereignty of God. See, this whole sovereignty thing we don't necessarily always understand. We somehow think, because we're Western, that our voice is part of the vote. We somehow think that, that, that we get, we get to, to, to have some impact in, in, in what is right and what is wrong. 
Now, I understand why we do that, because we live in a system where we have a vote, and our vote puts people in office, and they do the things that we want them to do. It works perfectly. Right? A little nervous, nervous laughter there, right? I think most of us, the older we get, the more we realize that that's just kind of a sham anyways, right? I mean, there's this whole system going on, and they make us think that we have some control and power, right? Nevertheless, we've got to understand that God is not a democracy. He is not a republic. He is a theocracy. He is sovereign. This word sovereign means he exists apart and independent from anybody or anything else. Let me share with you a few of the passages of Scripture that, that share, uh, remind us of this. In Second uh, Chronicles 20, verse 6, he said, You, the God of our ancestors, you are not a God who is in heaven, and you do not rule over all... Excuse me. Are you not the God who is in heaven, and do you not rule over the kingdoms and nations of the earth... Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Job 12, 13 and 14. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his alone. Whatever he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whoever has Im- he has imprisoned cannot be released. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6. Yahweh does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the depths. And then Proverbs 19.21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. So you've got multiple passages of Scripture, I could go on, but I won't, that declare that, that God is sovereign. And yet you and I, when He doesn't deliver us, often move to the place of accusation. How could you not? First off, we accuse Him of making a promise He didn't make. But secondly, we accuse Him of being unjust or unfair. Who who are you to accuse God, to bring him on trial for fairness? And I say that with my own finger pointing to me. Who am I to judge God as unfair? As if I'm the fairness ruler of the universe. As if I've made every right decision. As if I've ever, ever always looked at conflict and go, do this, do this, do this, and it was right all the time. As if I've always been a perfect father. As if I've always been a perfect husband. As if I've always been a perfect pastor. As if I've always been a perfect student. No. Who am I to judge the fairness of God? I'm the least capable of doing so. And I think if you were honest, you'd have to look in the mirror and say, you're the least of case as well. When we judge God's fairness, we judge it by our own finite standard. We judge it with a very narrow view of what's actually going on. And I love the book of Job because what it shows us is that God on his throne with great patience and great mercy, he says to Job, stand up and answer me like a man. Oh, that just brings shills to my bones. Okay, God. And then he begins, it's multiple chapters. Where were you 
when I set the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the mountain goat gave birth? Where were you when I dug out the oceans and planted the moon? And, and it seems as though as this conversation from God to Job is going on, Job is going, uh, yeah, uh, mm, uh, yeah. Why? Because God is sovereign. See, we want to judge God's fairness based on what our finite eyes see, not realizing that God's fairness is rooted in His character. To judge God as unfair is, to, is an assault on the character of the God who spoke all things into existence. I want to say this cautiously. I don't think God is offended by that. But I think God will not let it stand. So I think that when we come before God, because you've done it, I've done it, certainly. God, you're just not fair. God goes, okay, let's talk about fair. Because God is not only the God of the universe, but the Bible also reveals Him as Father. And what a father does is he loves his children. And what a father does is he helps his children to understand and grow and mature. And so in that moment, God says, let's talk about fair. And in my experience, when that happens, what God is really doing is rooting out the things in my life that are unfair and using my accusation against Him to truly be an accusation against me so that I am made holy in the moment. That's part of sanctification. Does that make sense? So we look at these situations and we say, number one, God's not fair. But then we move it to another step. But, but, but God is sovereign, so He is fair. Because He defines fair. Listen, we got to understand, God is the one who makes the rules. He's the one who sets the boundaries. He's the one who decides what is right and what is not. In uh, Exodus, the Scripture tells us that God will love who He loves and He will hate who He hates. In other words... I have a right because I created the foundations of the earth to do whatever I choose. But you see, if you look at just that, you might have a picture of, an, uh, of, of, a, of a mean, vicious, spiteful God, but that's not the full revelation of God in Scripture. The next thing that we need to understand, or the next thing that we do, rather, first we blame God as not being fair. Actually, here, here's the steps as I see them. First, we try to apologize for God. When God doesn't deliver, we first try to apologize for God and we try to do our, our word, wordsmithing to make it, oh, well, God did this. And it, basically, we need to just say, that wasn't in God's purpose. He doesn't need you to defend Him. He just needs you to obey Him. We start, we, we start to do wordsmithing and then we move to the part of, God, it's just not fair, you're just not just. We may not say those words, but a lot of times that's what we, we're thinking, Right? But then we move to the next phase, which is manipulating or trying to manipulate God. I found myself doing this very thing. Fine, God, I'm just not going to pray. I mean, I prayed. I got other people to pray, and your word says where two or three are gathered in my name, there you will also be. Well, you might have been there, but you sure didn't do nothing. You might have been there, but you didn't say anything. So I'm just not going to pray. Fine. I'm going to take my dollies and I'm going to go home, right? Come on, be honest. Have you ever done that to God? 
Yeah, right? You know what we're really trying to do? We're trying to manipulate him. We're trying to strong arm him into going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, don't be mad at me. Come on. We're trying to go, you know, God, you must not love me. Because if you love me, you would have bought me that ice cream. Do we sound like a a three-year-old? Guys, listen, we do the exact same thing to God. And we think that God is the parent who will just cave and go, oh, I'm so sorry, honey, I'm just so sorry. But you see, God is more interested in your character and in his own integrity than he is in making you happy or even satisfied. Because satisfaction comes from a source that is rooted deep in the character of God, not in what you want from God or expect from God. And so we try to manipulate him and we try to say, God, this, you said this or you didn't do this or you this. But here's, here's the goodness of God. So many times when we run off like this, God speaks in that still, small, quiet voice and he says, Really? Really? I don't love you? So often in his goodness, he reminds us of the times that he has shown us his love and his mercy and his grace. And so often, it's after that stage that we realize what we've said and thought and done, and we move back to the Father and say, God, I'm so sorry. And then it's the most important part of the whole deal. Lord, I trust you. What do you want to teach me? Lord, I trust you. What do you want to teach me? You know, the Bible tells us that his ways are not our ways. Let me, let me read it to you, okay? In um, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I, I skip that. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. This is God speaking, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, the plans of God are often a mystery to us. And the things that he does when he doesn't deliver us from, he is actually doing something greater. He's doing something that we cannot see in the moment, but if we will trust him, we will recognize that all that he is doing is for perfection in his own purpose and plan, not only in our life, but also for his glory. I I have a friend in Colorado, in uh, Pagosa Springs, who... Uh, I just got back, uh, we were doing some hunting in Pagosa Springs, and down at the bottom of the mountain, uh, before we enter the National Forest, there's a friend of ours, her name is Joyce. Now, her, her husband's name was Alan, and they used to run the, the, the place that, that we would have to go through to get to the forest, so we became friends over the last several years. But about two years ago, Joyce's husband, Alan, died. He got sick, was taken by ambulance to the hospital. She said she didn't even realize how serious it was. She thought he was just having some trouble breathing. And it turns out um, he died. And her whole world at that moment was shattered. Because Alan was the brains behind the operation. By this time, he had retired from running the, the ranch. And he just took care of his 35 acres that he and his wife Joyce had built over the last 20 years. They literally cut wood off of their property, milled the logs, and built the most beautiful house I've ever seen in my entire life. Every single piece of wood in that place was off their own land and milled with their own hands. It is masterfully 
marvelous. There are, there are, there are, there are uh, columns in there, burnt hardwood columns that had petrified that were over 100 years old, and they stood in the center of the home as beams that kept it. All of the stairs were milled wood just, just that was cut and, and shellacked about four inches thick. It was breathtakingly awesome. But here's the thing. Alan had, I think it might have been polio, but he had a, the, the inability to walk straight. So he, he walked with a limp. He was very strong, but physically it was hard for him to do stuff. So she became the workforce. He was the brains behind it. I went to visit her a few days ago before I left. And as we were talking, I was asking her, so how are you doing? She goes, you know what? God is good. I'm not lonely. I've got plenty to do. She's actually building onto the house, and it's, it's continuing in the beauty. And she said, but, but I have been frustrated. I said, well, why? She says, I haven't had water at night in five months, over five months, because Alan designed the well and the pump, but nobody can figure out how it works. So she did the work, but he did the brains. He really was a genius. It's amazing because you'd never think he was a genius if you judged him by just what he looked like. He was a small guy, but brilliant in every single possible way. He figured stuff out. So, so she said, I've had 20 people come to try to figure this out and fix it, and nobody can fix it because nobody understands how it works. And so I started to share the message with her. I mean, it was God's perfect timing. She said, you know what? Last night, I went off on God. I told him, I said, fine, I'm not praying anymore. I'm done. You obviously won't fix it. You obviously don't. I mean, she said, I just, and then I shrunk back and I go, Lord, I'm so ashamed. How could I think about that? And I said to her, you know what, Joyce? I don't understand why it's not being fixed. I.e., I don't know why he's not delivering you from this. But if you'll shift your focus to being thankful and asking God, God, what do you want to teach me through this? And then say these words. Lord, it belongs to you. So you'll either have to fix it or I'll have to trust you for my needs. And folks, that is where we need to be when God doesn't deliver. Lord, it belongs to you. This situation is not out of your control. You are still on your throne. I don't understand it. I may never understand it, but I trust you. And I'm, I'm depending on you to provide in the midst of what is going on. Here's a promise, or here's a truth. You've never been promised that God would deliver you from the fire, but he has promised that he will deliver you through the fire. Hold on to that. In fact, you've been promised that life is going to be tough. In fact, if you will look at this, the, the history of Christianity, every single believer eventually is not delivered when, they're asked for, when they ask for deliverance. Everyone, starting with the apostles. Peter was crucified upside down, tradition, that's what tradition says. James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple over 100 feet. When he hit the ground, he didn't die, and so they clubbed him to death and stabbed him with the sword. Acts chapter 12 tells us that he was stabbed. We know that uh, Thomas was speared to death with a, with a wooden spear. The only one of the apostles that we know of that didn't die a martyr's death was John, but they tried. Christian tradition or history tells us that he was boiled alive in a vat of oil. 
They literally took the Apostle John, they put him in a pot of oil, and it didn't kill him. So they wound up, wound up banishing him to the Isle of Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation by inspiration of God. I've never thought about this before until this week, but he was writing, no doubt, with scars and blistered from being boiled in a vat of oil. His scars and the pain of, of the suffering of life did not inhibit his writing, I think it actually increased the meaning of what God gave him to write into what we have as the book of Revelation. Because think about it. Revelation talks about how there's great tribulation and turmoil. Don't you know that John was thinking to himself, yeah, I understand tribulation, I understand turmoil, but through it all, God wins. Through it all, the victory of God is declared, will be declared, will finally be revealed. It just won't be in my time or in my way. Your deliverance is not from always, but it is always through. And it might be that the through deliverance is that you move from this life into the next, but that's okay. Because the Bible says that Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is to gain. And in, in the book of Corinthians, if this earthly tent I live in is destroyed, that's okay because I've got a, ha- a, 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 a home that is built by the hands of God that's not built by human hands. I said to my friend Joyce, I said, Joyce, you know, you never would have written it out this way. You never would have asked God, God, take my husband. But the truth is, the Bible says, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of one of his saints. And I'm not making light of that. There's still real pain. There's still real suffering. But the reality is sometimes it is the mercy of God that we actually accuse God of being unjust. See, what we discover through more of conversation is that Alan had gotten to the point where he was physically about to be totally dependent upon a wheelchair. They were having discussions about building a ramp up into their beautiful home. Alan spent his life on a horse. He was a rodeo man. He rode bulls. He rode uh, bucking horses. Even with his infirmity, he was a man's man all the way, if you know what that means, right? He was tough, and there was nothing that would stop him. Even in his physical infirmity, he was going to make things happen the best he could. And he was dependent upon his wife to do simple tasks that he no longer could do. And he said, and, and, and she said, you know what? I believe the Lord took him home. Because he would have been miserable in a wheelchair, seeing all the things that he no longer could do. You know, the times that God doesn't deliver, maybe he's got something different in store. Maybe there's beauty that comes out of the ashes that never could come unless there were ashes. Doesn't mean that we're signing up for a trip to to, to Payne Lane, but the truth is, God is sovereign. If we can learn to trust his heart, we don't have to know his plan. I want to invite you today, whatever you're wrestling with. By the way, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 spoke of a thorn in the flesh. He said, I prayed three times, probably more than that, that God would deliver me from this. And God chose not to, but instead he gave me this word. He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You've been given this thorn in the flesh as a reminder that it's not about you, Paul. See, I think God knew the nature of Paul and that Paul, in all of his ambition and zeal, would have stole and robbed the glory from God. And I think God was saying, I want to remind you with a limp that I am God and you are not. Paul spent his entire life dying to self 
part of the struggle and pain and non-deliverance in your life is helping us and you and me to die to self. That's part of it, maybe, right? But my question for you today is this. Whatever you're wrestling with, if you're still holding on to a time when God did not deliver and you thought he should, I'm going to ask you to, in this moment, say to God, God, I release that accusation against you. I don't understand it. (laughs) But Corinthians again says, now we know in part, but there's coming a day when I will know fully just as I am fully known. You may not have the answer why now or even in this life, but one day you'll stand before the Father and the Father's going to go, can I show you what I was doing? And you're going to go, ah, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that you were perfecting in me. By the way, do you want to know how God sanctifies you? By cutting off the things that don't look like him. You cannot cut something off without a little bit of pain. Pain is part of the deal. But with that pain is also the salve, the, salve, the, salve, the, 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 the ointment that God puts on. Yea, the old King James, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil. I'm skipping ahead. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In other words, he delivers you through the valley. And then he uses that time to heal you and to shape you and to love you so that you know his voice. One more truth. The God of the mountain is nowhere near as precious as the God of the valley. Have you found that to be true in your life? Forgive my words. That's not a biblical statement. That's just, when you're on the mountain, everything looks good. Anybody can serve God when things are going good. You got plenty of money in the bank. You got plenty of food on the table. You got your mortgage paid. But when you're in the bottom of the bottom and you say, even though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's the God that is closest to you. It's the same God, but it's a depth of relationship that's different. So this morning, if you're blaming God for something in the past that he didn't deliver you from, I'm going to ask you to let it go. Like, like seriously, today, right now, let it go. And, and don't, ask, don't tell God you forgive him for failing. That's not what I'm saying. Ask God for forgiveness for accusing you. And as a father, he goes, I understand you. I know you. Come here. If right now you're in the midst of a time when God has not yet delivered, but you're, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying because sometimes he delivers. Don't stop praying, but pray the way Jesus prayed in the garden. Lord, Father, I pray that you would deliver me from this, but not my will. Yours be done. We never cease praying because we believe who God is, but we also recognize sometimes he doesn't answer like we want him or expect him to. The last thing is this. If you're here today or if you're listening by by TV or by Facebook, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. I want to invite you to yield yourself, surrender yourself to him and say, Jesus, I'm lost. I need you. I've placed my faith in you and I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Will you stand to your feet? Father in heaven, I ask that you would take 
take these, these words, take these passages and implant them inside of our soul. Because, Lord, this message today either is speaking directly to us about something we've dealt with, something we're dealing with, or something we will deal with. Father, remind us of your goodness in every possible way. And God, strengthen our faith in you to believe what we've heard, not what we see. And what we've heard is truth, because your word is truth. And Lord, when we know the truth, we will be made free.